Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattitiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Mazariah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijar, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbathay, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azaria, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. I'm not going to make you stand whilst I talk. I don't want your legs to go dead. (coughs) So, good morning. It's really uh, great to be with you. I think it's the first time that I've actually preached in person. I think I did it a couple of times online, on video, where I could have multiple edits, so... We'll see how this goes. Uh, So my name is Ben, and I'm the youth pastor here at St. Paul's. So this morning, we're continuing our sermon series, Rebuild, uh, and we're looking at Nehemiah 8. So the wall is done. The wall has been built and completed in 52 days. So if any of you have any building work done in the next few weeks, you can take your Bible to the builders. You can wave it at them. And you can say, if they can complete a city wall in 52 days, you can finish my building work quicker than you're quoting. (laughs) You've got the mandate. It's there in scripture. So the Israelites are fired up. They're living on the crest of the wave of excitement of all they've just achieved. Physically, the place is renewed. And now they turn to their spiritual renewal. They ask Ezra to bring God's word to them. There's a passion and an excitement to learn from the word that's initiated by the people. It's not forced from on high, but the people are hungry for it. They want to hear God's word. 
The Israelites are united. They're of one mind. They're together, uh, their desire and their purpose, they're single-minded in what it is that they want, and that is to hear from the Lord. There's a couple of other interesting things going on at the same time, which kind of ties into what I'm going to be saying, but there's a couple of details that you also might miss. So in verse 2, we're given a clue as to what's going on, and we're told that it's the first day of the seventh month, which if you're like me, I think in all things in life, less haste, more speed is probably the motto that I need to follow in my life, and tend to just rush through uh, when I'm reading and miss some of the finer details. And this is one of those finer details where we might just be like, great, it's the first day of the seventh month. Why does that matter? But clue number one, keep that in your mind. The second clue uh, is that the assembly is made up of men, women, and children, or those that can understand, which probably means older children uh, who can understand. Again, for us here, we all meet together regularly. It might not be a big thing. But back in, uh, in their time, they would normally have worshipped in the temple, which had various different courts, and you would have been segregated uh, by gender, uh, by age, by status, all those sorts of things. So it's an odd thing that they're here today and they're worshipping together. And they're not worshipping in the temple, but they're worshipping uh, outside the temple, outside the water gate, uh, in a square there. So they're having a mass gathering, and it's significant because they've intentionally met somewhere where everyone can be included. They're making it an inclusive event on purpose. And with a bit of digging, we discover that the first day of the seventh month is indeed the first day of the Festival of Trumpets, which is the new year of the Hebrew lunar calendar. So maybe there's a bit of new year optimism and excitement going on at the same time. I'm sure we've all experienced that before. My unused gym membership definitely tells of kind of new year enthusiasm uh, that kind of lasted about two days and then uh, just died a death. Uh, but this is then followed by the eighth day of the month, by the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Festival of Booths. So if there's one thing you can learn, it's that Jewish people really like a party, and I've learned that I probably need more Jewish friends, so I can get invited to these sorts of parties. Uh, and I think the Church of England could learn a thing or two. We need to have more festivals and celebrations, things that are joyous like this. And Tom's going to be disappointed because this passage flies in the face of all the conversations that we have at staff meeting about the length of sermons. Ezra stands and reads the scriptures to people for five or six hours. <laughs> now, this would be mind-boggling if they did this for one day. But they carry on doing this, and they do this for seven days. So according to the experts, people that have way more time on their hands than I do... Someone's worked out that you can read Genesis all the way through to Deuteronomy, so the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. You can read it aloud in 15 hours if you're going at a relatively slow pace. So probably what Ezra is doing is reminding them of their history. He's reading all their history to them over, uh, those, over that week. So, buckle up. You're going to be here until the light party, and I expect you back every day for the next week. And we're going to read from Genesis to Deuteronomy. We're not. Uh, but all joking aside, I wonder whether you have ever read scripture in long form like that. Now, I'm not expecting anyone to stand up and like, oh, yes, 
I've read for five or six hours every day for seven days. Uh, But maybe you've sat down and you've read a book of the Bible from beginning to end. Some of them are quite short, so that might be a bit of an easier challenge for you. But I wonder whether you've sat and you've read one of the Gospels or you've sat and read Acts. It was one of the... uh, When I was studying at Bible college, one of the things we had to do was read Acts from beginning to end in one afternoon. And it was heavy going, but it was really helpful because actually you didn't just jump and change and jump from this passage to that passage or this book to that book, but actually you got the whole trajectory of the narrative. You understood the whole story in its context as it was supposed to be understood. Maybe you've engaged in the Bible in one year or something similar. One half term, I had the crazy idea of making my youth group in a previous job listen to the whole of the New Testament in one half term. Not quite sure how I got them to agree to do it, but they literally came to the youth room every day during half term, and we listened to a portion of the New Testament. And I'd stuck paper up all around the walls, and they wrote all their questions, and they highlighted bits and made links between different bits. But actually... It was a crazy challenge, and I probably would never do it again because my brain was really struggling towards the end. I thought it was just going to leak out of my nose or something by the end of it. But actually, it was really helpful because it set up so many of the questions, of the passion that the young people had, because they could finally see how things fitted fitted together, how they connected, why they made sense, why those different things were there. Some of the finer details made sense that if we just dip in and dip out, you don't understand, you don't connect with. So my first question for you is, will you commit to reading the Bible in long form, in one way or another? But this isn't just a ritual reading. So Ezra isn't just reading uh, reading the Bible aloud. He's also helping the people to understand what they're reading and to to apply it to their lives, to bring life change in what they're doing. So equally, the second challenge for us is, are we simply reading our Bibles or are we studying them? I think sometimes it can become a bit of a tick box exercise. I don't know about you, but if I'm reading my Bible on an app and I can see I've got to read five verses and a devotional, in my head, something says that I've got to do that as quickly as possible to tick all the boxes so I get the satisfaction of saying day complete on my iPhone or whatever screen I'm using it on. I think sometimes we need to slow down and just take it in. Take time to mull it over. It's like a good meal. If you shove your food in your face as quickly as possible and swallow it, you'll probably A, make yourself sick, as my parents always told me growing up. Uh, But also you're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to taste it. You You taste your food when you take your time, when you chew it, when you mull it over. And I think the same can be said for our Bible reading. And I think the Bible is a little bit like an onion. Bear with me. Some of you are crying sacrilege. Uh, But the narrative is complex. It has many layers. It's got lots of different interconnected parts to it that we need to peel back bit by bit to understand what's going on. The New Testament is referring constantly to the Old Testament. And if you haven't read the Old Testament, we don't understand it. The new is not going to make sense. So we need to spend time peeling those layers back, not speed reading, not skimming bits. Otherwise, we're going to miss the richness, the depth, the detail. And similarly to an onion, we see from this chapter, the Bible has the ability to make you cry. So be prepared for that. 
And we might think it's an odd response. Why are they crying? Isn't this a happy occasion? They've built the wall, mission's complete, it's done. But I think often the Bible's like a mirror. It exposes our blind spots, our vulnerabilities, the bits that we try to hide, and it lays them out bare before us for, for all to see. And it can be quite a confronting experience, I think, when you read something in the Bible and you're like, well, I don't do that, and I'm not like that, and I get really angry. But it tells me how I'm supposed to be patient. It can be a hard experience engaging with the Bible. And that's what we see here. So the assembly are convicted of their shortcomings, of the times they've missed the mark and not met the standard that God has set for them in his law. And so seeing how far they've fallen invokes an emotional response in them. One that on any normal day would be appropriate. But on this day, Ezra and the Levites, it's not the response they want because this is the beginning of the festival of tabernacles. Weeping and mourning is going to ruin the spirit of the celebration. This was not a time to dwell on the mistakes of the past, but to embrace a new reality marked by obedience and faithfulness. The, re- the reading of the law was not to produce mourning for what was, but to celebrate the victory of the present and a joyful hope for the future. Similarly, the Gospels recount the story of Jesus. His perfect love and unblemished faithfulness stand in stark contrast to our shortfallings, to our sinfulness. In reading about and hearing of Jesus, we're confronted with the magnitude of the times that we've tripped up, that we've made mistakes, that we've fallen short. We've become so much less than what we were created to be in our original design. But Jesus doesn't die so that we can wallow in our shortcomings and our mistakes. The writings of the New Testament are not given to produce mourning, but repentance that leads to rejoicing. Conviction is overwhelming apart from the grace of God. But this is a beautiful example where Ezra and the other leaders are exhorting the people to stop weeping. Not because they haven't made mistakes or they haven't got it wrong, but because the joy of their Lord is their strength. They can delight in the joy of the Lord because he is a forgiving God. He is a compassionate God. He is a gracious God. And the same is true for us today. The Festival of Trumpets and the Festival of Tabernacles is a time of rejoicing, of commemorating the Israelites' wilderness wanderings of remembering how God has been faithful, of how he's protected and provided for his people at their lowest times. Of remembering simply that they are God's chosen people. Of how he rescued them from captivity and slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. They celebrate the truth that God has protected them in times of threat and provided for them in times of hardship. And the same is true for us. It's helpful to remember our beginnings, to appreciate where we've come from and where we are today, to recognise the movement of God in our lives, to reflect on the trajectory of not only where we are now, but of where we're headed, of where we're going, of the journey that we're on uh, with God. They can be the anchor moments in our life of remembering those times where God has moved or spoken tangibly to us, where he's protected, provided, led and guided, uh, but also of his character. We know that if he's done it before, he's going to do it again. We know that he is a good God and that he's there for us. 
So joy is always the appropriate response when we are assured of God's love for us and his faithfulness to us. But even more so, this is true for us as Christians compared to uh, the Jewish people. Because as Christians, we know that Jesus' life, death and resurrection provide us with salvation. That they offer us with true life, with abundant life, with life in all its fullness. So how much greater should our celebrations be? How much greater should our joy be? If they're having a week-long celebration, I want a fortnight's worth of celebrations and joy and laughing and enjoying ourselves. This is the definition of revival, of spiritual renewal, when God speaks to his people collectively through his word, convicts them of their shortfallings and provokes a desire to return to him, to follow him with all our hearts, to worship him. The word of God brings power and freshness to their worship. Their rejoicing flows from a renewed understanding of God's grace and a readiness to obey him. So my challenge for us this morning is, are we ready, are we eager to hear the word of God? Do we come to church with a desire to hear from him? Do we ask him to speak to us? Are we expectant that when we meet together, he's going to move? He's going to move in power, that he's going to change our lives, that he's going to transform the situations that we find ourselves in. I think often we can become so dulled to the words and the teachings of the Bible because we hear it so much. We have open access to it. I think I counted on my bookshelf and I have about seven Bibles on my bookshelf and probably one of which is the one I read all the time. But we've just become so over-familiar with the word that is with the scriptures that the words don't impact us in the same way. So we need to be intentional and expectant when we read the word. We need to ask the Spirit, what are you saying to us through this? What are you asking of us from this verse? How can we apply this to our lives? How is this going to bring about life change in us? I think sometimes we become complacent with the Bible. We forget what it is. We forget its power and its worth. Scripture tells us that God's word is perfect. That it's all God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That it has the power to restore, to make wise, to bring joy. It gives light to our paths. It keeps us from straying from God's ways. It accomplishes its purposes always and remains relevant to every generation. God's word is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so I don't know about you as we come to a time of confession and absolution in a moment. I don't know about for you, but I have found lockdown hard. I think it's taken its toll on my faith at times. It feels like we've been in Groundhog Day probably for two years where it's the same thing and it's like the news is the same. Are we ever going to come out of the end of this? But I think that sense of Groundhog Day has had its effect on, on my faith. You know, at times I've been lazy. I know I found it hard watching the services, especially for the first six months when I was editing them and had probably watched every part of the service five times over to edit it. And I was like, oh, I don't need to watch that. I've watched it five times. I don't need to watch it again. I don't need to go to, to church online. I've, I've watched it. It's done. And then I think... At the same time, it breeds, it's breeds a consumer attitude as well, where for the first time you can attend church in America and be sat in your bedroom, eating your breakfast, in bed, in your pyjamas. 
And I think for some of us, there's probably some unhealthy habits that have formed, some unhelpful things that have developed in our faith. I know for me, like I've said, my reading of scripture often is a bit of a a sprint rather than a marathon. It becomes a a tick box exercise, a fast food snack when actually I need to slow down and give it time to ruminate, to mull over, to affect me and change every part of my life. But the good news is that it doesn't have to continue this way. If you, you, like me, are in the same boat, I might be in the boat by myself, and that's fine if I am. I will confess my sins in front of you all whilst you sit and watch. Uh, But the good news is that it doesn't have to continue this way. If, like me, you found it hard, then just like the Israelites, we can confess our sins. We can study God's word to learn what is required and obey it. And maybe today is a day of rededication, of recommitment, of reinvigoration of our faith and our following of Jesus and the word of God. A recommitment to studying his word and understanding and applying what we read in every area of our lives. And so now I'm going to hand back over to Tom to do our confession. As I said at the beginning, can sit down. I forgot to say that. Apologies. Uh, So Isaiah 55, you're very good. You just waited until I said you could sit down. Isaiah 55, 1-2 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fares. And so in a second, the kids are going to be happy because, well, some of the adults actually, I saw lots of you eyeing them up as we brought them in. Uh, we're going to join in our own family celebration of enjoying grape juice and donuts together. But the, the good thing about all that we've heard is that the Bible has the power to change us. But also it's futile in trying to find satisfaction and joy apart from God. We might spend a lifetime working hard to purchase things that are ultimately going to leave us frustrated and empty. And God alone holds the key to true satisfaction. In him we can finally and ultimately be delighted. God has blessings that can't be bought or laboured for. Blessings beyond our wildest dreams and better than donut bites and better than grape juice. Our hearts are made to worship the true and living God. When we come to God's word, we hear his good and life-giving voice. His word is going to shape and reorientate our lives the way that we were designed to be. John 10.10 says that Jesus tells us that he came so we may have life and life in all its fullness, life in all of its abundance. So let's not be satisfied any longer with the quick fix with the fast food, the counterfeit gods that the world tell us will give us everything. Instead, let's run to the one who holds the key to life, to satisfaction, to abundance. Let's push into the presence of Jesus, into the presence of God, where we will find everything that we need. So come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. 
Come and experience the lavish, the lavish grace of God. The abundant life that he offers. So as we come to our time of celebration, reflect not on the things that we've been convicted of, the things that have held us down, but let's freely run in celebration into the arms of the Father to enjoy the sweet treats that remind us of the joy that it is to be known and held by our Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do now, there's going to be four stations, uh, so please don't all run at once to one because it's going to be chaos and I don't want to stain the carpet because Gail will be angry with me. (laughs) So what we're going to do, so there is one in each corner of the church. If you're gluten-free and you need a gluten-free sweet treat, they will be with Tom, who is going to be on my right. But other than that, there is going to be sweet treats at every station. So come and take a cup of uh, grape juice and a donut treat and let's be reminded of the joy of God. Thank you. Wait, 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 wait. Praise the Father. 